Thank you, dear brother. Church, would you take your copy of God's Word and open it to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. Today we're going to be studying verses 5 through 13. The message is entitled, Marvelous Faith. That should be the desire of all believers is to have faith that is amazing faith in the eyes of the Lord. Faith is a subject of much discussion these days. We read about faith, we sing about faith, we even base our eternity on it. But have you ever stopped to wonder what faith really looks like? How do you know if you have faith? How do you know if your faith is authentic? Sometimes what appears to be true faith may in fact be a counterfeit. One thing is sure, Jesus knows true faith when he sees it. Here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, Jesus sees faith in an unusual place, the life of a Gentile centurion. This man's faith is so strong that Jesus himself marveled because of it. Think about that for a moment. Jesus marveled because of the great faith of a Gentile. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our faith was so strong it caused Jesus to marvel, to be amazed? What does it mean to have a marvelous faith? By looking at the life of this centurion, we can answer this question. And so I hope that you have found your way there in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Here I want us to learn three things about faith that are found in this man's life. First of all, let's begin by looking at the opportunity for faith. The place of this opportunity is identified in verse 5 as Capernaum, when Jesus entered Capernaum. We all know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's the eternal son of the living God, but he stepped out of the glories of heaven and descended to the earth in the form of the God-man. As much God as if not man, as much man as if not God. He was born there in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. And then he stationed his headquarters for ministry in the Galilee region in the city of Capernaum, which was a fishing village on the northern sea of Galilee. And there Jesus spent much of his time. He did many miracles in this city. As a matter of fact, this city, unfortunately, failed to truly embrace Christ. There was unbelief there in spite of the teaching, in spite of the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' life, in spite of the miracles he performed, many in that city did not believe. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 15, we find that Jesus prophesied that this city will be destroyed because of their lack of faith. And in fact, it lies in ruins today. Capernaum was located not very far from where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, if you walk to the west from Capernaum, it's a short distance to arrive at that very spot. There Jesus preached that great message. You can read that message in Matthew's gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. 
And there Jesus talks about what it means to be a kingdom citizen. If you are a Christian here today, I want you to know you are a kingdom citizen. You become such a person by expressing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is very important in the Christian life. As a matter of fact, the Bible says without faith, we can't please God. Faith is essential to be saved, but not just for the moment of salvation where we are transformed, but in the process of sanctification where God is continuing to change us to the very image of his son, the Lord Jesus. So so faith is vitally important. And I think as we look at this passage this morning, we would be wise to examine our own selves to make sure that the faith that we say we possess is genuine faith. Here the, the place is Capernaum and there's this connection between Capernaum and the place where Jesus preached that great sermon on the mount because his emphasis on faith is now followed by an example of faith. And it comes in a very unlikely person. Notice the person that is spoken of here. You'll see in verse 5 that when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him imploring him. A centurion was a leader in the Roman army. He was head of around 100 soldiers. That's where he gets the name centurion. We know the word century means 100. It's a very similar term. Uh, The person in this position would be in command of around 100 soldiers, perhaps a little more sometimes, maybe a few less, but, but that was his role. It would be the equivalent of a captain in our vernacular in our armed services but this was the type of person that that really rose among the ranks Uh, he was a hard-nosed sort of a person he had to be because he was accustomed to -to hand-to-hand combat this was the type person that was able to to garner the respect of those around him those who were serving with him he was reliable he was a strong leader So these were some of the characteristics you would find with a person who served as a centurion. But note that he was a member of the Roman army. This was the strongest army in the world. No one could oppose the Roman army and survive. Many times they would demonstrate their power in a very harsh way. They would do this in order to discourage people from uprising against the army against Rome itself. So they were known for their brutality in many cases, and certainly crucifixion was one means that they would use to intimidate the populace, to keep them at bay, and from trying to show any type of opposition against Rome. And this man is not only a centurion in the Roman army, but we know he is a Gentile. This makes his faith even more amazing By Gentile, that means that he was not of the Jewish race. He had not been afforded all the privileges of being brought up in a Jewish family. He had not been able uh, to be called a descendant from Abraham. So he was not considered a person of great faith, one who believed in the one true and living God. Oh, it is true that God created the nation of Israel from Abraham... I know his son Isaac and then Jacob came along 
Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and then the descendants of Jacob, the 12 sons, and then ultimately the 12 tribes of Israel to the great nation that we know even today. God brought forth this nation. He selected this people in order to send the good news around the world that God loves people and that God wants to redeem people. God wants to save people from their lost condition. And sadly, as time went on, as the years passed, century after century, and ultimately Jesus comes on the scene as a fulfillment of prophecy, many among the Jews did not embrace Christ. And this was due in large part to the distortions imposed upon the Jewish faith by the religious leaders. They were like blind guides, Jesus said, like the blind leading the blind. Of course, we know what happens. They both fall into the ditch. But the the Gentile people did not have access to the word of God to the degree that the Jewish people did. They didn't have the temple uh, where they uh, could worship, although they could enter the temple, they were not treated in the same fashion as those who were Jews. They could come to only a certain point there at the temple, on the temple grounds. But here is a man, although he is a member of this great army that is oppressive against the people of God, the Jewish people. Although he is a Gentile, he's not a Jewish man, he is a man that exhibits great faith. It's an amazing faith. It is a marvelous faith. And that's why why this example is so outstanding for us. Here is a man who had faith that we can follow. A faith that we can see as an example. So we've looked at the place. It's Capernaum. We look at the the person. He's a centurion. He's a Gentile. And, And by the way, so are we. We're Gentiles. Aren't you glad the Lord saves Gentiles? I know I am. And then we see the problem. We find it in verse 6. Here the Bible says, uh, This man came saying to the Lord, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now, this is a very serious problem, no doubt. This is a terrible predicament to be in. Now, as we, as we read these words, this man sent by way of messengers, we're told in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, he communicates with Jesus through these individuals because he doesn't feel worthy to approach Jesus in person. And he certainly doesn't feel worthy to have Jesus come into his home. But as we read this passage, we see that this centurion is a man, not only of great faith, but he's a compassionate man. He's a man who has a kindness toward others. He has a concern for one of his troops. He's referred to here as a a servant. He was really one of the troops of this man he had in charge of him. And he's concerned about his physical condition. He knows that this man is in such a state that no one else can help him. The local doctors with their medicines could not help. This man's physical body was not in the condition that it could recover and experience life again the way this man needed. This man was in a dreadful situation. 
And it's pointed out here that he was fearfully tormented. That is, he was racked with pain. He was excruciatingly filled with anguish over the pain that his body was undergoing as a result of this problem. Now, we don't know what's the source of his paralysis. That's the condition this man had. We don't know if it was from a disease or from an injury. We're simply not told. But we do read in this description that this man had a very terrible circumstances physically that he was enduring. This was a tremendous problem. The old saying goes this way, opportunity only knocks once. Have you heard that saying? Well, that does not apply to faith. There are opportunities each day that calls for the activation of our faith. We must begin to see life's challenges, not just as difficulties that we have to contend with, but as opportunities to display marvelous faith. Folks, we live in a fallen world. And with the fallenness of this world, there are difficulties. We have to realize as God's people, we're not home yet. We are pilgrims passing through this lowly earth. And there are many challenges that we have to encounter. And they come through many avenues. Sometimes it's a physical difficulty like we read about here. Some of you I know firsthand are suffering physically. You are sick in your body. You're struggling with disease. Or just the deterioration of your body because of age. Some of you are struggling relationally. You have a problem with someone in your life. Maybe it's a husband or a wife or a child or a co-worker or a friend or a neighbor. And it's really a distressing situation for you. Some are having financial problems. You feel like you don't have enough money to pay your bills and you have other things you need to do, but you just simply can't acquire enough revenue to do it. And so it's causing you to struggle. Some of you are struggling with your work situation. Maybe you're in a job that you don't like. Or it could be that you own a business and you're struggling with that business, trying to get it up and running. And it's very difficult. There are all kinds of problems that we face. Difficulties that we encounter. We can't see these as just merely difficulties that we have to endure. We need to see them as opportunities to display amazing, marvelous faith. Faith is important in our lives as Christians. And we face these opportunities all the time. Let's not waste these opportunities. Let's use them for the glory of the Lord. So we see the opportunity for faith here in this passage. But secondly, notice with me the operation of faith. How does this faith work? Well, we see it here on display. Notice with me in verse 7, the source of authority that is needed for faith to operate. We read about it here, verse 7, let me read it for you. Jesus said to this man, I will come and heal him. Now that is, a, that is a powerful statement if you stop and think about it for just a moment. Now we know the Lord well enough to know that he has this ability. I mean that's, that's no real surprise to us, but, but think with me for just a moment. Let's suppose that uh, 
you wake up tomorrow morning and you're really deathly ill. You're hurting in your body. You're running a temperature. You can't even get out of bed. So you have someone call a doctor and the doctor says, I will come and heal him. Now the doctor has not done any type of investigation. No examination at all. There's been no blood work done. No test of any sort, whether it's an MRI or CT scan. Uh, The vital signs have not been taken. The doctor really doesn't know fully what's wrong with this person. So how could he possibly make the claim that he's going to go heal the individual? Well, he can't. The reason is because he's a human being and he has limitations. But when Jesus gets word that this man, this centurion, this Gentile centurion has a servant at his home that is sick, that is suffering tremendous pain, Jesus responds to his faith by simply saying, I will come heal him. He can say that because he's God in human flesh. He can say that because he has full authority to do whatever he wills to do. He has the power to accomplish this proclamation. And we'll see that he does because that's in fact what he accomplishes. He does heal this man at the end of the story. But he makes this bold claim, I will come heal him. So the source of authority here is God in human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has far authority over our situations in life. Now it is true that God gives us, to some degree, a free will to exercise. We can make decisions, we make choices, and unfortunately, sometimes we make the wrong decision. Sometimes we choose wrongly, and we suffer the consequence of that, and so do others who are around us. That is certainly the case. But in this situation, we see that God works beyond The situation, he works beyond the complexities of the person's physical difficulty and all the other issues around this problem, and he has full authority to deal with the situation. We see not only the source of authority, though, we see the show of authority. In other words, Jesus doesn't just say he's going to do something about it, he does something about it. Look in verses 8 and 9. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. He doesn't want Jesus to come into his home because he realizes who Jesus is. He realizes that Jesus is far above him in authority. And he is humbly saying to the Lord, Lord, you don't have to come into my house. You have full power and authority to speak the word and my servant will automatically be healed. This again is another expression of this man's faith. He knows who Jesus is. You say, well, how does he know as a centurion? How does he know as a Gentile? We do know that he was a friend of Israel. We learned that by studying Luke's account in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. There, 
the Jews speaking to Jesus on behalf of this man say that the centurion is a friend to the nation and that he even built a synagogue for them there in Capernaum. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the very foundational stones to that synagogue are still there to this day, although the synagogue is in ruins and there has been another one built on top of it. You can see those stones dating back to the time of Christ to this day. So they were favorable toward this man. And they felt like this man was worthy of being helped. By the way, this does give us some insight into the thinking of the Jews. Uh, they were quite eager to help people they thought were worthy to be helped. But others they would not suggest you help because they didn't feel like they met the standard. Aren't you glad that God does not look at us in that way? That God helps us when many times uh, we are unworthy of being helped at all. But God loves us in spite of ourselves and he interacts in our lives and he works in our situations. And here Jesus is willing to come to this man's home to heal his servant. But the servant says, Lord, I'm not even worthy for you to enter my home. Just speak the word and it will happen. And Jesus then, verse 9 says, for, un, for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to the other, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. So the, the centurion through his friends, speaking to Jesus, tells Jesus, Lord, you don't have to come because I understand who you are. I understand because I myself use authority. I'm in authority over others and I give the command to a servant and he does what I say. He doesn't debate me. We don't have a conversation about it. It's not up for discussion I am in control of these troops and what I tell them, they do it. And Lord, you're in authority. You're over all things. All you have to do is speak the word. I know you possess the power and authority to do it. Again, this is, this is an underlining. This is an exclamation point to this man's bold, marvelous, amazing faith. He simply trusts Jesus. He simply takes him as who he is. He understands something about the very nature and the character of Christ and his great love that he desires to display to us all. This is the operation of faith. Faith is not something that we express when the circumstances are right. Faith is not something that we show when we know how the, income, the, the outcome is going to ultimately happen. Oh no, faith is what we do when we are living in difficult circumstances. Faith is best displayed in the trials of life. Studies have been conducted that prove that the human eye can see the light of a flickering candle in the darkness as far away as 1.6 miles. That's an amazing thing to consider. Of course, the darker the night, 
the brighter the light. Marvelous faith is best seen in the darkness of trials. Now listen to that. Marvelous faith is best displayed in the darkness of our trials. I like what Adrian Rogers said. Faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Difficulty gives us the opportunity to demonstrate our faith. Let us not shirk our trials. Let us not turn away from them. Let us embrace them as people of faith. That we're going to trust God even though we don't know the outcome. We're going to believe in the Lord even though we don't have control of the situation. You know what I've learned a long time ago is there's not a whole lot I can control. That's the way life is, isn't it? I mean, I like to think I'm in control. I like to think I can handle everything. But the reality is every breath I take is a gift from God. Every beat of my heart is a gift from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift, the Bible says, comes down from the Father of lights and in whom there is no shadow of turning. We're blessed people. But we're people that will go through difficulty. And in that difficulty, let us have this strong abiding faith that we are going to trust Jesus Christ no matter how dark the night, no matter how difficult the trial, we're going to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. And that's easy to say. And we don't know how strong our faith is until we're challenged by a crisis. That's when we can really tell if We have strong faith. Now, it's easy to come in here on Sunday morning in a good circumstance and lift our voices and sing praise to the Lord. Sing and say hallelujah, amen. It's something else when we're living in the nasty now and now. Facing the hardships and the trials and the disappointments. And we wonder, God, what is going on? Lord, are you even aware of what's happening in my life? It's in those times that we will be able to see just how strong our faith is and perhaps whether or not we truly have authentic faith. Finally, I want you to see the observations about faith from this passage. Look, if you would, in verse 10. I've talked about a marvelous faith. We see it in verse 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. This is the only time I'm aware of in the Bible where the Lord Jesus said in a positive way, he marveled at someone. He marveled at this man's faith. Of all the Jewish leaders, of all the apostles, of all the people who follow the Lord... Jesus says of a Gentile centurion that he marveled over, the, over his faith. The only other time he used that, by, uh, that word in the Bible is found in Mark chapter 6 verse 6 where the scriptures tell us that Jesus marveled at the Jews' unbelief. What a contrast, right? 
Jesus is marveling over their unbelief among people who should have known better. People who had access to the Word of God and all the prophecies of God and, and this rich history of faith. But yet their, their faith is lacking. It calls Jesus to be amazed. How could that be? And then here is this Gentile centurion who says, Lord, you don't have to come to my house. I'm not even worthy for you to enter my house. All you have to do is speak the word. And my servant, my servant that no one else can help, my servant will be healed. Jesus marvels at this man's faith. This is marvelous, amazing faith. But also there's a rare faith here. Look at verse 10 as we continue to read. And he said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Jesus had said on another occasion of the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter needed to be healed, that she had great faith here And she, by the way, was a Gentile. Here is another Gentile that is told has great faith in the midst of people who who knew better, who should have been uh, 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 demonstrating this marvelous, glorious faith for all the world to see. I think there's a lesson here for us we need to give careful attention to. And here it is, you and I as people of faith, we know better. We have the word of God that we are to read daily, to be strengthened, to grow thereby. We we have opportunities to come and worship the Lord in sermons that are preached. And we have devotionals that we read. We should be bearing the light for all to see. We should be showing the world that is lost what real, genuine, authentic faith is. Where else will they find it? If not among the people of God. Let us not make the same mistake that the Jews did so long ago. And take for granted all of these experiences with the Lord. Let us allow God to grow and enhance our faith Through the difficulties of life. Let us simply take him at his word. And believe him come what may. This was a rare faith indeed. But also a saving faith. Look at verse 11. Jesus said I say to you that many will come from east and west. And recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by this? What he's saying is folks. There's going to be people in heaven just like this centurion. People that you don't even suspect will be there. People who are Gentiles. Now he's talking to Jews. And this was hard for them to swallow. Jesus is saying that heaven would be filled with people who are Gentiles. Why? Because God loves people. We read in the book of Revelation that from every nation and tribe and tongue, they will be gathered around the throne worshiping the Lord. God, as I mentioned earlier, wanted to use this nation of Israel to be a bright light to the nations. 
And when they rejected their Messiah, what did God do? He brought forth the church. And we are to bear the light to the nations. That's what we're told in Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, verses 19 and following. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what we're to be doing. Shining the light of faith to lost and dying world. So Jesus says, yes, there will be many Gentiles who will be in heaven. But contrasting to that, look if you would, not only a saving faith, but a necessary faith. Verse 12 tells us this, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says that there will be many among the Jews who have rejected their Messiah and as a result they will be cast out. You see, Jesus is trying to help them to understand that you're not going to heaven because of your religious pedigree. You will only get to heaven when you embrace Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I wonder how many are here this morning who have been religious for many years. And if I were to have a personal conversation with you and ask you, listen to me, listen to me now. If Listen to me, look up here and listen. If I were to ask you when you die and stand before God, if he asks you this question, how would you answer it? And here's the question. Why should I allow you to enter into my heaven? What would be your response to that? Don't you think about that question. Why should I allow you to enter into my heaven? How would you answer that question? Let me tell you, I guarantee you there are people sitting here this morning. Here's how you would answer that question. Well, I'm a member at First Baptist Church. I know I'm not perfect, but I try to do what's right. I've been a good husband. I work hard, take care of my wife and children. I've never broken the law. I've never been to jail. Or I'm a good wife. We begin to talk about all the things that we've done that somehow merit our entry into heaven. And friend, I'm telling you, if that's how you answer that question, you don't know Christ. The answer to that question, why should I allow you into my heaven, is Lord, I don't deserve to be here. But realizing I'm a sinner, destined for hell without Christ, I have embraced Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And it's through His sinless life, His sacrificial death, and His glorious resurrection that I'm able to enter into the presence of God. It's through Jesus. He's my Savior. 
I'm telling you, that's the only answer. That's the correct answer. And if you have any answer other than that, I'm telling you, you need to make sure before you leave this place today that you're right with God. It's not about religion. It's not about grandma always come to church and sitting in this pew and she gave a window, you know, years ago. And grandpa, he's buried out back. I'm telling you, that type of thinking is all based on human effort. Jesus is trying to use this example of faith to teach these people, hey, wake up. You're not going to heaven because you're a Jew. And friend, listen, you're not going to heaven because you're a Southern Baptist. Good old boys don't make it to heaven. Good old girls don't make it to heaven. Saved men and women who have yielded their lives to Christ and by faith received Jesus and His forgiveness. Those are the ones going to heaven. And when we are saved and God begins to work in us a new, a new work, He begins to work a new life within us, He begins to produce fruit once you have been saved. Yes, good works will follow salvation. That's what James talks about. He talked about how that if you're truly saved, that work will come as a result of that. Because works for Christ are the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. I mentioned earlier that Jesus had preached the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the closing words of that sermon are some of the most frightening words you'll read in the Bible. And just before he gives this example of faith that appeared in Capernaum, he says these words in chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of the Father? The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? That is, Lord, we were preachers. And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is trying to get these people to see that faith is necessary for salvation. And then we see in verse 13, an active faith is on display. Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. The activation of this faith impacted his servant's life and brought healing. It was a confirmed faith. Verse 13 says, and the servant was healed that very moment. He was healed. These are observations about faith and it gives us an opportunity to look at our faith to see if it's authentic. You know, some Christians live as if they are saved by faith and then the rest of their lives 
is dependent upon them. The truth is that faith is necessary for every aspect of the Christian life. Faith is like the key that slips into the lock of a door that opens that lock to the greatest blessings of God. Faith. When people comment about your life, what do they say? Do they mention your wealth? Your personality? Your ability? Your talent? Or some other coveted attribute? Or do they mention your great faith? Because when it boils down to the very bottom line, the most important thing in life is what you've done with Jesus. Do you know him? With heads bowed and eyes closed here today, if you say, Pastor, I just don't know. I'm not sure if I am saved. I'm not sure if I died today, if I would go to be with the Lord. Friend, why wait any longer? You don't have another day. You have only this very moment. If you believe that you are a lost person, if you believe that you need to be saved, and you also believe Jesus is the Savior, would you cry out to Him this morning? And you can, you can pray this prayer from your heart to God's heart. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, and I need to be saved. And I believe Jesus is the Savior who died for me and rose again from the dead. And by faith, I turn from my sin and self, and I surrender my life to Jesus. And by faith, I receive his free gift of salvation. Wash my sins away, Lord, the blood of Jesus. Cleanse me, purify me, and please accept me into your family. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I rejoice with you in the Lord. And what I would ask you to do at this invitation is you come and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. That will let me know who you are so I can help you to grow as a believer, help you get discipled, answer any questions you might have. I would also say if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have some more questions, you can see me, you can see one of our staff, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher. We'd love to talk to you about how you can come to know the Lord. If you want to join this church, you can come and just say, Pastor, I want to become a member here. We'd love to have you. Or it could be that you need to be baptized. Baptism is the first act of obedience for a new believer. Baptism doesn't save you any more than this wedding ring on my fingers makes me married. I wear this ring as a symbol, as a sign that I've made a commitment to my wife in marriage. Baptism is an outward sign that you have committed your life to Christ. It's the way you display the gospel. If you've not been baptized, friend, don't wait any longer. It's a very simple process. Come and make that request so we can celebrate what Christ is doing in your life. However the Lord is speaking to you, let's stand. You respond to God's word this morning with obedience.